Are y'all enjoying the conference? I think it's time we show our appreciation to Dave Reagan and Lamb and Lion Ministry for all they've done. Well, David may not recognize or remember this, but he's always been a mentor for me in Bible prophecy. In fact, um, when I first graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary and was on staff at a local church, I was, um, had the vision to bring a Bible prophecy conference to the North Dallas area. And so I invited Dr. John Walbert, Dr. Charlie Dyer, Dr. Tommy Ice, and Dave Reagan, Dr. Reagan, and I asked him if he would be the Alpha and the Omega, if he would kick off the conference and close the conference. And it lasted six weeks, and so it was truly a wonderful conference. And I've always admired David's zeal for Bible prophecy, his enthusiasm for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and also his deep compassion for the lost. And so because of that, it's a great privilege to be here with you this afternoon I want to share with you a couple of things this afternoon. David has always shared, already shared with you the condition of our church today, and many of you may know that for 2,000 years we've actually had two different churches being built. There's been two streams of Christianity operating side by side now for 2,000 years. You have the apostolic church that follows the Lord Jesus Christ, And that is the true church that eagerly awaits the return of Jesus to take us home to be with him in heaven. But there's another church being built as well, and that's the apostate church. And it's also 2,000 years old. How do we know that? First epistle of John, he said they went out from us because they were never part of us. If they'd have been part of us, they would have remained with us. That was the beginning of the apostate church, apostate Christianity. They still lifted up the name of Christ, but they followed anything other than the Word of God. So throughout church history, there have been some very serious attacks, not only on the Christian faith, but also on the church. And if there is ever a time for born-again Christians to take a stand and begin fighting for the truth, it's the times in which we live in today. The Bible-driven church has been replaced by the seeker-sensitive church, the market-driven church, the purpose-driven church, the emerging church, and yes, even the tradition-driven church. Founders of the emerging church movement have stated the church has failed in its mission. They say it must now be dismantled and restructured in the postmodern age. What do they give as evidence They say that the decline in church membership in all the major denominations is evidence of the church and its failure to attract more people. One sense they're saying, Lord Jesus, we know you gave us a blueprint for building your church. We've tried it, but it's not working. We've got a better idea. And so that's what they're doing today. And I just hope all of you sense the urgent need to contend earnestly for the Christian faith. Let's begin by going to the throne of grace, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for an opportunity to gather today in the name of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we know we are one day closer 
to the very day when you turn to your son and tell him to come and get us. But we know there's much to be done. There's many people that need to be saved. And yes, we need to earnestly contend for the faith. So I do pray that you would give us ears to hear, but more importantly, hearts willing to obey the message that you give us this weekend. We ask this in the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So David Wells aptly described the condition of the church this way. God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His gospel is too easy. His judgments are too benign. And his Christ is too common. Does this sound like the state of the church today? The church is rapidly losing its biblical foundation and its divinely ordained purpose for existing. John MacArthur said this latest fad, the emerging church in this postmodern era, thrives on disorganization, it distrusts authority, it dislikes preaching, it feeds on intellectual pride, and recognizes few, if any, doctrinal or moral distinctives. And then George Barna did a survey of those who claim to be born-again Christians. In his survey, he found that 91% of these quote-unquote born-again Christians do not hold to this biblical worldview. Absolute moral truths exist and are defined by the Bible. The Bible is accurate in all of its teaching. Jesus lived a sinless life. Salvation is a gift of God. All Christians are responsible for sharing the gospel, and Satan is real. This is the biblical worldview that George Barna asked these quote-unquote born-again Christians if you uphold this. Only 9% said they did. Now this must ask or prompt us all to ask the question, what in the world are our pastors teaching today if 91% of born-again Christians don't hold to this biblical worldview? Well, what are the causes for the current crisis in the church today? As I already mentioned, God's blueprint for building his church has been replaced. Pastors are now saying we have a better idea. An emerging postmodern culture is uprooting the church from her doctrinal heritage. And thirdly, church leaders are unaware or unconcerned of Satan's attempts to destroy God's church. And when I say they're unaware or unconcerned, clearly the Bible has given us warning after warning that not only the church but the Christian faith would be attacked by fiery darts of the devil. As we look into the New Testament, we see that the church will be attacked by worldly fables and speculations, empty philosophy, false knowledge, doctrines of demons, myths, lying spirits, vain deceits, heresies, and traditions of men. Warning after warning is going unheeded. Our Lord revealed his glorious plan for building his church 2,000 years ago. He told us who would build it and how it should be built. But Satan has countered the Lord's strategy with a strategy of its own. His strategy is to an attempt to destroy the church. For 2,000 years, the devil has assaulted the church with a barrage of these fiery darts. 
Well, part of the problem, I think, is this postmodern era that we live in. We've already talked about Brian McLaren. He's considered the father of the emerging church movement. And if you leave here with an understanding of the emerging church, please understand three principles that they follow. There are no absolutes. Brian McLaren has said, certainty on matters of biblical doctrine is impossible. It's a waste of time to discuss doctrine. Well, Brian McLaren wrote, if we allowed people to know the heart, or to know with the heart and not with the brain, we would open the door of faith to a wider audience, and if we continue to insist on a rational belief in the facts of the Christian faith. In other words, bypass the brain. Don't bother people with doctrine. Just appeal to their heart. This is his idea for building the church. Well, we also know that tolerance is part of the emerging church. Brian McLaren says we must be willing to accept people of diverse faiths, including those of non-Christian religions. Well, the Bible never encourages us to tolerate perverted or false doctrine. In fact, it strongly discourages this. Listen to the Apostle John. He said, anyone who welcomes a false teacher participates in his evil deeds. And Paul said, do not be bound together with unbelievers. What fellowship has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And then lastly, we see that relativism is also a major principle of the emerging church. Dialogue has now replaced dogmatic proclamations. And by this, they simply mean, let's do away with doctrine. Let's engage the unbelieving world. And through our dialogue, maybe we can agree on what truth is. Truth has become subjective. It's relative. It's not objective. And it's not absolute. In fact, we know from the pastor of the largest church in America today, there's no absolutes on sin as far as he is concerned. When asked about gay marriage, Joel Osteen said, I never feel like homosexuality is God's best. I don't feel like that's my thrust. You know, some of the issues that divide us, I'm here to let people know that God is for them and he is on their side. Well, pastors like Joel Osteen will never confront sin as long as their goal is to increase attendance. Why? Because he knows that worldly people do not want preachers who hold them accountable to God's Word. They don't want to hear about moral absolutes and the need to repent. Well, Joel Osteen's Christianity is really a fulfillment of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3-4. to 4. Paul writes, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. This is why he has the largest church in America. Well, we also know that worldly entertainment has invaded the church. A.W. Tozer had this to say about it. For centuries, the church stood solidly against every form of worldly entertainment. But of late, we have the astonishing spectacle of millions of dollars being poured into the unholy job of providing earthly entertainment for the so-called sons of heaven. 
religious entertainment is rapidly crowding out the serious things of God, and hardly a man dares raise his voice against it. You know what happened when you and I raise our voice against this movement. We are labeled an unloving and divisive. But yet, we do need to stand for the truth, don't we? Many pastors are always seeking new methods to grow their church. It seems like pragmatic ideas that draw crowds are deemed acceptable, even if they go against the blueprint our Lord gave us for building His church. Not too long ago, a church here in the North Dallas area put in the Dallas Morning News, any first-time visitors will receive a silver dollar. Attracting the world and using filthy lucre. Is this what the blueprint the Lord gave us to follow? I think we would all agree no. These pastors that are using worldly devices to attract the world in need to realize this very important fact. Whatever you win them with is what you win them to. We see in Psalm 127, 1, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. If we're not building the Lord's church, guess whose church we're building? Recently, I looked at the website of a large market-driven church in the Dallas area, and I was shocked at what I discovered. I'm sure all of you will be as shocked as well. We see now that hip language of the culture is mocking God's holiness. They were going to do a series, a three-part series on, quote-unquote, funky things that Christians do. The titles for the messages were the groovy ghost, a look at the Holy Spirit, the funky dunk, a look at baptism, and this is the one that really grieved me, Daddy-O's dinner, a look at the Lord's Supper. Well, this complete lack of reverence for the holy things of God really grieved me, grieved me so much that I called a friend that I knew worshiped there, and I asked him to go to the website and to look at the upcoming series. He immediately called the church and voiced his disapproval, and fortunately, within 24 hours, the website was taken down. But this made my friend realize that he was in the wrong church, that if the church is not upholding the holiness of God and calling people to reverently worship and adore him, then it was time for him to leave. Jeremiah Burroughs said, the reason men worship in a casual way is because they do not see God in his glory. Until men see God as he truly is, they will be guilty of the very same rebuke God gave to the wicked when he said, you thought I was just like you. Psalms 50, verse 21. And I believe the church needs to take a fresh look at who God is and his almighty power. And I think more than ever, this is, con- this is confirmed as we study church history. But let me say one thing that you may not be aware of. This lack of reverence in these seeker-sensitive, market-driven churches is causing a very peculiar thing to happen. Many people are now leaving evangelical churches and they're going to the Roman Catholic Church. And it's because of this lack of reverence, this lack of formality, they realize that they want something where they can go and worship God reverently. We need to be aware of this. Now, obviously, 
if they're truly born again, they're not going to go to an apostate church. But think of all the people that these churches have drawn in. They become churches of the terrors. They're not truly born again, and so when they leave and go to a Roman Catholic religion, they're really going into an apostate form of Christianity. But we really need to go back to the reverence for God in our churches today. When we look at church history, we can see that there's been some ups and downs. In the ancient church, we had the church that defined our theology during the first 600 years. But then during the medieval church, during the next 900 years, we saw theological darkness. The Bible was removed from the layperson's hand. But then, praise God for the Reformation. During the Reformation, theology was restored. And that's lasted up really until the 1900s. But we're now in the modern and the postmodern church, and we're seeing a theological decline. And I think we can learn a lot from church history. The Reformation shifted the authority for our faith from the church to the scriptures. During the medieval church, the authority was the church, the infallible popes and their traditions. But the shift was back to the scriptures. But now we see in the modern church, the modern church is shifting the authority from the objective truth of scripture to the subjective opinions of men. No longer are people interest in what, in what the Word of God says, they're more interested in the book of second opinion. And that's because emerging church leaders have said that soundness of faith and biblical theology are not important issues today. If biblical theology is not important today, then what do we do with what the Apostle Paul said? Retain and guard the treasure and standard of sound words which, have, which you have heard from me. Retain them. That's your standard for knowing the truth. Paul goes on to say, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. We can never let a lie of the devil go unabated. We've been entrusted with the truth of God's word. We must stand up and defend the glory of our great God and Savior. Paul also said, if anyone teaches doctrine opposed to the words of Jesus... He is conceited and understands nothing. In Titus chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, Paul tells us how to handle those who try to distort sound doctrine. He says, reprove them. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Don't give attention to men who turn away from the truth. And yet that's all the people that people are listening to today, the ones that have turned away from the truth, the ones that have a better plan for the church. Well, as these emerging church leaders try to reinvent the church in a postmodern era, it will do us well to revisit the characteristics of the first century church. Can we look back at the nine strategic characteristics? And I'm not for a moment, saying that these are all inclusive, these nine characteristics, but I think you would agree they're probably some of the most important. So when we look at the key marks of the Lord's church, it has to have a high view of God and his purpose for the church. The church exists to reveal God's glory, to exalt his majesty, 
and to carry out his purpose and reverence. So what do we know about the purpose God gave us for his church? I think you could say that it's like a three-legged stool. First, it needs to be a sanctuary for his people to worship in reverence and to be edified and equipped for service and evangelism. The purpose for the church is also to make known wisdom, the wisdom of God to rulers in heavenly places and to provide a body for the head. The Lord Jesus is the head of the church. We are his body. The church exists for the purpose of gathering the body of Christ together, which will one day be presented to him glorified and holy without blemish. So this is the purpose, as we see, for the church, equipping, edifying, and evangelizing. It should be a sanctuary from the world where believers can come together and worship God in reverence and be equipped to go back out into the world for the purpose of evangelism. And I hope you realize that all three of these functions must be in balance, or what happens? The stool tips over. Many churches today have turned their focus away from feeding the sheep, and they're now entertaining the goats. <laughs> but God's purpose has always been to equip the saints and never to entertain the world. If we make friends with the world, we set ourselves at enmity with God, and this is affirmed in Scripture. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So I want to look real briefly at one of the legs of this stool. After we are brought together to be equipped and encouraged, and we're sent out into the world for the purpose of evangelizing for God's glory. And we all know that people must hear and believe in God's holiness, his righteousness, and justice before receiving the blessings of his love, his mercy, and his grace. We must start with God as our holy creator, that he is sovereign over all of us, that one day every knee will bow, every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until the unbelieving world understands that, they will never be interested in receiving the blessings of his love, mercy, and grace. Yet an emerging church leader said, evangelism is no longer about persuading people to believe. It is about shared experiences, each person with their own tradition and culture, but with the possibility of encountering God and truth from one another. This is how the emerging church wants you to evangelize. You see an unbeliever, you walk up to him, and you engage in a dialogue. You don't try to persuade them to believe the word of God. You simply dialogue with them and hope that in your dialogue, truth can come out of your conversation. You see, there's no objective truth anymore in this postmodern era. Well, we find God's blueprint for building his church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where Luke writes, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's the blueprint. We come together for the purpose of doing that, and then they make the Lord's last command our first concern, and that is to break huddle and go out into the world to rescue those who are perishing. And I hope you all realize that 
these vital elements that we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, are vital for the life and the health of the church. We know from Scripture that God's church is not a market-driven church or a social club. It is not to be driven by man's methods or ideas, and it should never conform itself to the emerging culture. On the contrary, the church must seek to conform the culture by being the salt and the light. When the church is following God's blueprint, it will be radically different from any organization that man has ever devised because man didn't devise it. The church is the only institution our Lord promised to build, promised to bless, and promised to protect. And when we look to the master builder of the church, we know it's the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church. Does not do man any good to follow his own ideas or strategies to grow the church. We must look to the master builder. In fact, we can learn from Peter, can't we, in this passage in Matthew 16. He thought he had a better idea to build the Lord's church. Remember in Matthew 16, immediately after Jesus announced he would build his church, he said, first of all, I must go and die for it. First, he had to purchase his church with his own blood. In other words, before the first nail was hammered to construct the church, nails had to be driven into the hands and the feet of the master builder. What was Peter's response to this? He quickly rebuked the Lord, saying, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus, seeing his blueprint was already being challenged by man's ideas, turned and said to Peter, You are a mouthpiece of the devil. Get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of man rather than the things of God. This should be a convincing rebuke for any pastor that tries to build his church his own way instead of following the Lord's blueprint. I think Peter's brashness is especially shocking because he was standing in the way of Jesus going to the cross to purchase his church. In essence, he was proposing a church without a cross. Isn't it interesting? The more things change, the more they remain the same. Today, there are many pastors who are downplaying the importance of the cross. They want a social club without a cross. Well, that's the condition of the church today. We need to turn back to the master builder because it is he who is adding to his church daily those who are being saved. He is baptizing them into his body with the Holy Spirit, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. When we look at the church that the Lord is building, we know its foundation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul said, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. No matter how beautiful the structure of the church is, it will crumble if it's not built on the foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22, Paul writes, The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple unto the Lord. It's really interesting, isn't it, that the seeker-friendly churches are filled with people who do not want to hear the hard truths of our Lord Jesus Christ, but yet that's exactly what the church is called to proclaim. It is indeed the pillar and support of truth. It is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And Paul writes, For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is made up of. Members who do anything for the truth and stand against anything that opposes the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears Jesus. But so many people today have their ears plugged up and they do not hear the very words of Christ. Well, another characteristic of the Bible-driven church is it lives on God's Word. This should be obvious, but not in our emerging culture. The church lives on God's Word. It loves God's Word, and it can't exist apart from God's Word. In fact, the Bible is a love letter from God to all of His children. And God's children always love to hear the words of our Savior. My very first trip to Israel, I was over there for over a month, thousands of miles away from my sweetheart back in Dallas. And I always remember each day going to the mailbox to see if I had a letter from her. And when I received a letter from her, I read it and I couldn't put it down. I reread it, I reread it, I cherished every word that she wrote. I was lonesome for my dear wife back in Dallas. In fact, Jane, are you here? Why don't you stand up so everybody can see you? She is my helpmate. She is such a vital part of our ministry, and if you haven't stopped by our resource table, please do and say hello to Jane. But this is the attitude that all of us should have about the Word of God, to realize that it's a love letter, to cherish every word, to be reluctant to put it down and just live and thrive on the very Word of God. The Bible-driven church preaches the Word of God. We see the importance of faithfully preaching the Word in Paul's solemn charge in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He wrote, Preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I think that the inner circle in heaven will be pastors who faithfully preached the Word of God and didn't follow every fad that came down the pike. Yes, those other pastors are drawing larger crowds, but the ones that faithfully preached the Word of God are the ones that are going to be in the inner circle. And praise God if you belong to a church that faithfully preaches the Word of God. Pastors will never be judged on the size of their church because that's the Lord's business. He's the one that adds to their number those who are being saved. But pastors will be judged for how faithful they were in feeding and protecting the flock that was entrusted to them. 
Preachers who exchange the Word of God for positive messages that tickle the ears and never offend anyone need to look to the Apostle Paul. He never avoided preaching Christ crucified just because it was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. He faithfully preached Christ as the power and wisdom to those who are being called by God. You see, the Word of God has a polarizing effect. Those that love the Word of God and have been given ears to hear the Word of God will come and hear more of God's Word. But the unbelievers who have their ears stopped up and cannot see because the prince of this world has blinded them from the light of the gospel, they'll go to a church that preaches man's opinions and tickles their ears. But how is the Word of God to be preached? The Bible gives us clear examples. Paul was our example. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We need to preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That's the best way to make every man complete in Christ and to reveal God to his people. Whenever the word of God is preached, Christians are edified, encouraged, and equipped. It is through the preaching of the word that Christians are reproved and restored. And it's through the hearing of the word that unbelievers are confronted, convicted, and converted. Nothing else. Our words are void of power, but God's word can bring conversions. A Bible-driven church also submits to the word of God. In fact, the true church submits to the head of the church, which is the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. He and his word is the supreme authority in all matters of faith. Every teaching, every tradition, every spirit, and everyone's individual faith must be tested by the word of God. That is the plumb line for knowing the truth. We see examples here in Acts 17, 11, when the Apostle Paul preached to the church in Berea, the synagogue of Berea. As he was preaching, he noticed that people were searching the scriptures to find out if what he was teaching was really true. They were testing the veracity of an apostle's teaching with the word of God, with scripture. Great example for all of us. In Mark chapter 7, verse 13, we see how traditions were nullifying the word of God. And in 1 John 4, 1, we see that we are to test every spirit. How do we test them? With the Word of God. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul exhorted us all to examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. How do we do that? Does our faith line up with biblical faith? Have we believed the objective truth of God's gospel? Well, all the problems that Dr. Reagan talked about this morning... All the problems that you've seen in the condition of the church today can really all be blamed on this one fatal flaw. The church not submitting to the supreme authority of God's word and all of their faith and practice. And I know this from personal experience. I was in a tradition-driven church for 37 years. Tradition reigned supreme. The infallible teaching of the bishops reigned supreme over the word of God. But the true church of Jesus Christ submits to the word of God. It also abides in the word of God. Jesus said, that's the mark of a true disciple of mine. 
If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from what? Free from religious deception, free from the bondage of legalism, free from the bondage of sin. Knowing the truth sets you free. And the Lord Jesus said, if I set you free, you are free indeed. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. More than ever in these times of spiritual apostasy, we need to be abiding in the Word of God so that we can know the truth and not be prone to deception. Bible-driven church also reads the Word of God. The life, the growth, and the strength of the local church is dependent upon hearing and applying the consistent reading of God's Word. Knowing this, Paul wrote, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. So let me ask you this. How is your church doing so far? Are they upholding the characteristics of a Bible-driven church? I know that this church is a Bible-driven church because I, for the first time in my life, I walked into the men's restroom of a church and there was a Bible hanging on the wall. As you washed your hands, you could be reading Scripture. I don't know if that's true in the women's room or not, but we've got it in the men's room. Well, a Bible-driven church also sings the Word of God. Paul instructed us to sing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Hymns with biblical theology and scriptural phrases not only glorify our Lord and sanctify His church, but also help us remember great biblical truths. Unfortunately, Many of today's hymns do not glorify God with sound theology. If you notice, many of the hymns are all about I, 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 and me, me, me. Praise God for Marty and for Jack for uplifting the Word of God in their hymns and songs, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ and magnifying our Lord. What a great ministry they have. Bible-driven church also believes and proclaims the glorious gospel of grace. And I hope you all realize that a church that believes and faithfully upholds the clear and complete gospel will not only welcome converted sinners into the church, but it will discourage counterfeit Christians from becoming members. A constant proclamation of the Word of God every Sunday is the mark of a true Bible church. We're living in times, though, when no one really knows the gospel. You know, a lot of uh, interviews and surveys have been done asking professing Christians to define the gospel. The responses are so inadequate. But what is the true gospel? Can I give you six characteristics? First of all, it's unique. It's the only message of salvation. It's the only message of hope. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4. There is one faith, and that's faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is also eternal, we see in Revelation 14, 6, that this gospel that was first announced in the garden, 
given to Abraham, will go throughout the world, and then the end will come. It is the same message for every generation, for every tribe, for every tongue, and for every nation. The gospel is also exclusive. It dares to say that all other faiths are false. And that is because the gospel is about one person who said, no one comes to the Father except through me. The gospel is also a gospel of grace. Anyone who perverts it by adding anything to the gospel of grace is under a curse. We see that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Paul said, even if we or an angel from heaven come back and preach a gospel other than the one you have received from us, they are to be accursed. And he was accursing the Judaizers because they came into Galatia saying, if you're a Gentile, you not only need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. Paul's response was condemnation, to be turned over to God for destruction, for daring to pervert the gospel of grace. The gospel is also the power of God for the salvation of all who believe it. That's the theme verse of our ministry, Romans 1.16. And so important the gospel is according to Scripture alone. The Bible doesn't point us to any other authority, to any other book. Everything we need to know about our salvation is completely contained in Scripture. That was the cry of the Reformers, sola scriptura. You want to know how to be saved? Look to the Word of God. But yet so many churches and religions want to take you outside the Word to their own traditions. Well, Emerging church leaders have redefined this glorious gospel of Jesus. Their emphasis is no longer on the atonement or sin or eternal salvation. Instead, they are calling for everyone to live in a kingdom community while trying to act like Jesus Christ. Well, whenever I witness and proclaim the gospel and share it with others, I always want to try and remember six Ps. It's a really a good way to follow the gospel. We always start with God, God's perfection. He is our holy creator, and he is our righteous judge. And then we move on to man's problem. The gospel must be addressed to man's problem. Our problem is sin. Sin has separated us from God. It's brought us under the condemnation of a holy judge in heaven. That's our problem. The cure is the Lord Jesus Christ, God's greatest provision to us. Through his shed blood, we can be cleansed of our sin. Through his mediation, we can be reconciled to God. The Lord Jesus Christ is our only hope. Once man receives God's provision, the only response to the gospel is that of repentance and faith. That's our part. We come to the cross bringing nothing but our sins. We leave everything else behind because the only way God will save us is through grace. Empty hands of faith, that's what we bring. So our only response to the gospel is repentance and faith. What is God's promise to those who repent and believe? Eternal life, no condemnation, power over the power of sin. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit, the power to say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit. And what is man's privilege? To worship God throughout all eternity, to glorify our great God and Savior in heaven, 
as his adopted children. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this gospel is the greatest news that you can ever share with the lost. It is the greatest news because it speaks of the greatest gift they could ever receive from the greatest man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope all of you want to share the gospel with those who are perishing. It is indeed their only hope. What are the divine promises of the gospel? Why is the gospel the greatest news anyone could ever hear? Because it promises eternal life with God. It promises the complete forgiveness from the guilt and punishment of sin. It promises the power to live a victorious life in Christ Jesus. It promises a permanent right standing before God. Hebrews 10.14 tells us that by the one sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has made us perfect forever, those who are being sanctified. The divine promise of the gospel includes every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ Jesus. Why aren't we shouting this from the rooftops? There's a huge mission field outside the doors of this church. We really believe in literature evangelism, sowing the seed, sowing the imperishable seed of God's word. Everywhere we go, we're giving the gospel. Even if we only have a few minutes with people, they will receive the gospel just by the opportunity they had to engage somebody who cared about their eternal destiny. Did you realize that over half of professing Christianity denies these divine promises? We've got a lot of terrors in our churches. If they're not believing the promises of the gospel, have they really heard the gospel? Well, what else does a Bible-driven church do? They're devoted to prayer. We read in Acts 2.42 that believers continually were devoted to prayer. The early Christians remembered the Lord's promise. If you ask me anything, I will do it. John 14, 14. As they demonstrated dependence upon the Lord, the results were astonishing. The Lord said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Matthew 21, 13. Members of the early church were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And Jesus taught us to pray with words and praise to the Father, honoring him as the source of all blessings. Sadly, this same devotion to prayer that the early church participated in is rarely found today. Churches can draw large crowds with entertainment, but when a prayer meeting is held, very few faithful trickle in for the prayer meeting. Have you heard about contemplative prayer? That's part of the emerging church movement, the postmodern era. Their idea is to empty your mind of everything and focus on one word. What's wrong with this practice? The Bible says that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If we empty our mind of anything, anything and everything can come into our mind. We need to stay focused on taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Yet proponents of this contemplative prayer method say it's the means of communing with God without any conscience or intellectual attempt to encompass God. Well, what do you end up encompassing if it's not God? 
We also see a mark of the church is to observe the ordinances that the Lord gave to the church. We know what those are. Baptism, it's the initial act of obedience, identifying the one baptized as a new creature in Christ. It symbolizes our death to sin and our resurrection to a new life in Christ. As the baptized goes down into the water, it symbolizes our death to Christ, coming up out of the water, our resurrection to a new life in Christ. We also know the second ordinance is the Lord's Supper. It's a symbolic remembrance of the atoning death of our Savior, the longing for his return in a time of self-examination. I hope you're going to a church that practices the Lord's Supper. We, our church actually does it every Sunday evening. So every week we, off, we do this ordinance that the Lord has given us to remember him until he returns again. The Bible-driven church also exercises discipline. This is quite a contrast to the postmodern church. What are two types of discipline that the Bible-driven church should practice? The first one is discipline for the purpose of godliness, as we see in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I know you're aware of these spiritual disciplines. You and I are all called to do it to discipline ourselves with these particular areas, our Bible study, spending time with the Lord, our prayer time with the Lord, communicating with God. Denying self is a discipline, a spiritual discipline. Worship, coming together for worship. Evangelism is a spiritual discipline. Serving others in the body of Christ. Stewardship of our time, our talent, and our treasures. Fasting and learning from the Word of God. These are all spiritual disciplines that a Bible-driven church will encourage all of its members to participate in. But there's a second kind of discipline, and that's discipline for the purpose of correction and restoration. Corrective discipline is necessary when sin or doctrinal error has crept into the body. The goal is to restore the individual to fellowship within the church with a loving and gentle rebuke. If there is no response from this loving and gentle rebuke, then a firm admonition or removal from the local church may be necessary. Because what happens when someone is living in habitual sin and continues in the body? It brings shame to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If they cannot be confronted in their sin and called to repentance, then we have to exercise this spiritual discipline and remove them from the body. Sadly, many market-driven churches are afraid to discipline their people for fear of losing their members or for fear of being considered old-fashioned or unloving. But we know that love never winks at sin and never condones unrighteousness. The church is called to be a sanctuary on this earth. It should be a glimpse of heaven where believers can gather in reverence and worship to our Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, a Bible-driven church contends for the faith. What do we mean to contend for the faith? We look to the epistle of Jude. The church needs to earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. 
We need to do it to defend the glory and honor in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also need to contend for the faith to keep the gospel pure for the sake of the elect. The gospel is being so compromised today, so watered down, so diluted, that it has lost its power to save. We need to go back to the biblical gospel, proclaim it with clarity and with completeness. We need to contend for the faith to keep the unity of the faith. When the Lord Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed to the Father that they, that is you and I, would all be one as he and the Father are one. The unity of the faith, and it can only happen if we're all earnestly contending for it. It's no wonder the Lord Jesus asked in Luke 18:8, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Well, there's all different kinds of faith, but Jesus was talking about the faith that we are to have unity in. And lastly, we need to contend for the faith to stand firm against the devil's schemes. We need to be aware that we are under attack, the church and the Christian faith itself. So as members of the body of Christ, we must contend for the faith. We also need to love one another. Members of the body are devoted to one another in brotherly love, bearing one another's burdens, and using their spiritual gifts in acts of service. Jesus said, men will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. Members are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Love for one another, a mark of a Bible-driven church. As members of the body of Christ, we must show our love for one another by word and action and by speaking the truth in love. So often we want to avoid speaking the truth because it might be offensive. But is it really love when we allow someone to continue in doctrinal error and we don't lovingly confront them, speaking the truth in love? Well, we talk about bearing one another's burdens using their spiritual gifts. If you have been gifted with the gift of discernment, the body of Christ needs you to exercise that gift today. We are living in times of deception that the church has rarely seen throughout its 2,000-year history. Exercise your gifts for the glory of God. So what can we do with a message such as this? Let me give you a couple of practical things to consider. We need to recognize the privilege of being involved in the most rewarding task on earth. What is that? The building up of the body of Christ for his honor and glory. You and I have been given that task. It is the most rewarding task. We need to fervently pray for our leaders to remain faithful to God's purpose and his blueprint for the church. There is so much pressure on pastors today as they see other churches growing so rapidly. So much pressure to remain faithful to God's blueprint, to his purpose for the church. Pray for your elders. Pray for your pastors. We also need to hold one another accountable to the word of God by speaking the truth in love. Hold one another accountable. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. He that is spiritual needs to lovingly correct those who are falling into sin or falling into error. 
Lastly, cry for discernment as we abide in God's Word. Evaluate your local church with these marks that you've seen, these characteristics of a Bible-driven church. Become part of the solution rather than part of the problem. I hope you realize that if you do nothing, if you're inactive in your body of the local church, you are part of the problem and not part of the solution. We need to be active warriors for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to close with just a wonderful testimony of God's amazing grace as a person came to hear me preach that was involved in a tradition-driven church. I was invited to teach at a Baptist church in Modesto, California, and I know we have a couple here from there. But after the message, there was a young Catholic couple that approached the pulpit and said, Mike, you've provoked our thinking We'd like to take you to lunch and ask you a few questions. So we went to lunch. He and his wife, he brought his Catholic Bible. He started asking questions, and each question he asked, I let God answer the question for him. I turned in his Catholic Bible, and I asked him to read it out loud. There's your answer. Well, the more times that God answered his questions, the more questions he had. This conversation went on for three hours, question after question. Well, at the end of the three hours, he was about ready to leave, and I said, before you go, can I ask you a question? Remember this morning I gave an illustration of this tradition-driven church, the Roman Catholic Church, how we are told as Catholics to cling to certain things to save us from the fires of hell. And I said, imagine that there's a set of monkey bars suspended over hell, And we were told if you cling to your baptism, if you cling to your sacraments and your good works and your law-keeping and the sacrifice of the Mass and purgatory and indulgences, as long as you're holding on to these rungs, you'll be saved from hell. I said, do you remember me saying that? Yeah, I remember. And I said, do you remember? I said, imagine Jesus is suspended between you and hell, and he's looking up saying, let go of those things that, cannot save you, and trust me to save you. Yeah, I remember. And you remember I said, if you're still clinging to those rungs when you die, you're going to lose your grip, and Jesus won't be there, and you will fall into the eternal lake of fire. Yeah, I remember. Well, are you ready to let go and trust Jesus to save you right now? And he just began weeping. And I just sensed he's, he's processing all that he's heard. What am I going to tell my priest? What am I going to tell my family? And I just let him weep for a couple of minutes. I put my arm on his shoulder and I said, Sergio, this will be the wisest and safest decision you ever make in your life. It's the wisest decision because every one of your questions has been answered by God. You've seen his answers. And it's the safest decision because who better to trust than the great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I asked him again, are you ready to let go and trust Jesus to save you? And his wife blurts out, I am. (laughs) And he says, well, what do I need to do? And as an evangelist, I love to hear that question. And I let God answer that question too. I turned to Romans chapter 10. I said, read verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Look at verse 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
He thought for a moment. He bowed his head and prayed the shortest prayer I've ever heard. Jesus, save me. And then he got up and he wrapped his arms around me. We praise God for bringing salvation to this couple. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that's all we're called to do. Unleash the power of God's word. Open the Bible. Let them read it. Let them see God's answers to their questions. Some of you are probably thinking, yeah, that's easy for you. You're an evangelist. You know where all the answers in the Bible are. But what about me? Well, that's why I wrote the book, Preparing Catholics for Eternity. This represents the largest mission field in the world today. One out of four Americans are Roman Catholics. They are perishing because they're following a gospel of works rather than a gospel of grace. They need to hear the truth. If you know Catholics, this is an excellent discipleship tool. Some of you are wondering, how can I best contend for the faith? Another resource we have is a brand new encyclopedia on Christian apologetics. Some great authors have contributed to this book, great reference book for your library. But also, we began this ministry some 18 years ago, inviting people over to our home to share a video on the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can do that. If you need recipes for desserts, talk to my wife. She knows many of them. For three months, we we invited people over. We saw 17 conversions in the first three months. You can be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's excellent resources for you to reach out to those who are perishing. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Oh, sovereign Lord, we thank you for this opportunity this afternoon to gather as the body of Christ in submission to the head, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the description of the church that you founded 2,000 years ago. Thank you for refreshing our minds on the characteristics of a Bible-driven church. And Father, I pray if there's a Sergio here today that is trusting in things other than Christ, might this be the day they turn to him and trust him as their all-sufficient Savior. For everyone else who's born of the Spirit of God, might we leave here with a greater compassion for those who are perishing. We give you thanks for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.